Crossway Church Sermon Audio. You can turn to Isaiah 12 if you haven't already as we continue our series in Isaiah. As the son of a carpenter, I knew what it was to work hard as a young man. And because my dad was not a dummy and he had four sons, he would save his worst jobs for us every summer when we were out of school. So whether it was shingling roofs or pouring concrete or basically any kind of dirty work, my brothers and I would spend our our muggy Iowa summers doing the worst, hottest, most demanding jobs that my dad had available because that's when he had his cheap labor and our young backs. Well, one of the worst and hottest jobs that I remember was when we had to blow insulation in the attic of a hog confinement. And I see Jeremy remembers that. Now, if you've never had the pleasure of being in a hog confinement, it's just a simple metal structure, several hundred feet long, and just jammed full of hogs. And then you add 90-plus degree July temperatures and 90-plus percent uh, Iowa humidity, and then you climb up in the attic. And, of course, before you go in the attic, you have to make sure you've got jeans and a long sleeve shirt and goggles and a face mask. Because blowing insulation, it's basically shredded newspaper that's been treated and it's just dusty and it's blowing everywhere. And so you're, you're covering yourself to, to try and keep this insulation off your body and out of your eyes and nose and everywhere it wants to go. And so you're in this attic and you are sweating so profusely. You feel yourself losing weight. This is like a wrestler's dream job, right? You know, cutting weight right before their match. And, and, and the sweat's just dripping into your eyes and it's insulation sticking anywhere that has exposed skin. It, it was a brutal job. And, and it was great work for a young man. Uh, fathers, if you have young sons, let me commend uh, dirty jobs. If you like Mike Rowe, dirty jobs to you. It's so important that young men learn to work hard that they learn the link between work and reward, that they learn to do things that they don't want to do, that they, that they learn to wake up at hours that they're pretty sure no one should wake up at. That's very important for a young man. That's an opportunity for fathers to instill in their sons. Well, I tell this story because it's such a vivid memory to me of what it means to be thirsty. We don't tend to know what it means to be truly thirsty anymore. Our our water is so healthy and it's so readily available, we can have a hard time imagining what it is to be desperately thirsty. But on those days when we were up in the attic of the hog confinement, we knew thirst. We, We drank gallons and gallons of water those days. We had to come down periodically to drink or else we'd get dehydrated and desperately sick. And when you came down out of that attic, water was the only thing on your mind. But because water is so abundant in our lives, we might even miss its importance in the Bible. In arid lands, water is precious, and in agrarian cultures, in farming cultures, water is life itself. It's necessary. It brings life to crops. It sustains the livestock. It sustains our bodies. It brings refreshment and cleansing. A surprising number of stories in the Bible revolve around water, whether it's writ large like the Noahic Flood or the the Exodus through the Red Sea, or seemingly smaller events like Moses striking the rock to to get water for Israel, or Jesus' meeting with the woman at the well. From beginning to end, water plays a very large role, an important role in the Bible. 
And today as we look at Isaiah chapter 12, water and thirst serve as key metaphors for what's going on in this passage. They're only mentioned once, but they're central and they vividly depict what's at stake. Isaiah 12 serves as a conclusion to this first extended section of the book of Isaiah. And over the past couple couple months, we've seen how the Lord raised up this prophet to speak to a people who were in great spiritual decline. Both Israel in the north and, and Judah in the south were in rebellion against God. They were both driving off the cliff just at a little bit different rate. And though God had been kind to them as his beloved children, they had repeatedly and repeatedly disobeyed him. They despised him. They rejected him. They were selfish and stubborn. They were insolent and proud. And yet God was merciful. Even as Isaiah was in the midst of declaring God's impending judgment to his people, these first 11 chapters have had some amazing messages of mercy and grace. They they have glorious pictures of God, like Isaiah chapter 6, where he is holy, 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 and, and not even the temple, but the whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah 7, where the the birth of Emmanuel, God with us, is foretold. And then in the passage we saw last week in Isaiah chapter 11, the, the raising up of the righteous branch who would restore and redeem Israel, who would bring the people back after they'd been sent away in judgment and exile. So these twin themes of a holy, gracious God and a selfish, stubborn people have been building through these chapters of Isaiah. Judgment is coming to the people because they persist in rebellion. But, as Peter's already reminded us a number of times, judgment is not God's final word. His purposes transcend judgment. They go beyond judgment. So even in the midst of a long-deserved punishment, a very patient judgment against his people, The Lord is working to redeem and restore a remnant. And so with that background in mind, let's read again these six short verses of Isaiah 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This chapter is a striking picture of God's salvation and of its effects on the lives of his people. But we have to be careful. Just like our our, uh, abundance of water can make us fail to appreciate the life-giving quality it has, so can an an over-familiarity, an easy uh, relationship with our sin. Light thoughts of sin can lead to superficial appreciation for the reality and the wonder of God's salvation. You see, that's the problem with this chapter. It's short, and it has sentiments that are 
fairly common in Scripture. And so we can read right through it. You, you know, you can imagine if you're doing one of those Bible reading plans and you look on your plan, okay, Isaiah 12, and you open it, yes, six verses, done, right? Just read a whole chapter of Scripture and you just keep moving on. But if we do that, we're going to trivialize the majesty of God's goodness and grace to us. And we're going to walk in immaturity in our lives as Christians. There's a necessary relationship between our understanding of sin and our understanding of grace. If sin isn't heinous in your eyes, Jesus will never be glorious in your heart. If you've never struggled with a sense of powerlessness at the the magnitude of your offenses against God and your persistence in them where you just keep doing them, if you've never felt powerless before that, then the gospel isn't very glorious. You'll never marvel at salvation if it's not a wonder that you're saved. And this is one of the great, great dangers for kids growing up in church. To take for granted, of course, of course I'm a Christian. Of course God forgives my sins. Why wouldn't he forgive me? Of course God loves me. Of course God loves me. Do you ever look at someone and wonder why they seem so caught up with Jesus? Wonder why Jesus seems so glorious to them. Well, if you talk to them and it's authentic, it's not just an act that they're putting on, what you're likely to find is that they think they are a very great sinner and therefore Jesus must be a very great Savior. And we can't short-circuit this process. Some Some people think that grace is just not talking about sin. But that's a critical error. Grace is seen best in contrast to its alternative, which is the wrath of God, the justly deserved wrath of God. You see, there's at least two ways that we can trivialize grace. One is by being moralists, by thinking that we can live in such a way that we'll earn God's favor, we'll merit God's favor. God will owe us. Just tell me what to do. Give me the application. What does God want from me? What does he require of me? And because a moralist is is generally a good person, and they're generally smiling and outgoing, and they generally call for good behavior, it seems very honorable. And it passes very well in this kind of environment. Right? Good people, hardworking faithful to their word, right? We do what's right. But at the end of the day, moralism just burdens your soul with commands that you're not fully obeying. And then it offers you no grace. It offers you no pardon for your sins, and it offers you no grace that will transform your heart so that you can begin to obey the Lord from the heart. You know, I was was watching Joel Osteen the other day, and I think, I think Joel's a sincere guy, right? He's a very attractive guy, put together, right? Cleanly dressed, great shape, his hair, if you like that kind of hair, right? And, and he's, giving, he's giving a very upbeat message. The, the mood of the service is overwhelmingly positive. Now, people love it. People eat it up. But if you listen to his words, if you listen to his message, 
He is a preacher of the law. And so many of his words have just or let's. Let's do this. Let's do that. Just do this. Just do that. And and so if you understand what he's saying, you ought to feel like you're under a million pounds of baggage because he's just laying weights. And and a lot of those commands are actually biblical commands. Let's praise the Lord. Right? We're not anti-commands here. But there's a but what he's not offering is any grace. There's a lot of Christian jargon, but there's no savior. There's no gospel. There's no forgiveness. There's no sanctifying grace. And that's one way to trivialize the grace of God. It can be very successful and very attractive and very, very deadly to your soul. The other way we can trivialize grace is by being presumptuous. Of course God will forgive me, we say. He's so good and gracious. He's so patient and loving. I don't need to get so bogged down with all this sin talk. In his classic book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, Philip Reef explains one of the key differences between our therapeutic age and people before us, especially before the time of Freud. In our therapeutic age, it's everywhere assumed that a primary value in life is to be happy. We go out to eat to be made happy. We shop online to be made happy. We get married to be made happy. We come to church to be made happy. But in the past, Reef writes, if men were miserable, they went to church so as to find the rationale of their misery. They did not expect to be happy. He's saying that people went to church to have their misery explained to them. Today, we not only want to be happy, we expect to be happy all the time. And I'm going to look at this idea a little more under our second point, so I won't tease that out anymore. But the problem for us is that the idea of owning and confessing our sin to God is, at first blush, not a happy thought. We can be tempted to try and short-circuit the process by skipping over the sin part and going straight to what we want to call grace. But if there's no sin, there's no grace. If there's no sin, there's no need for a Savior. And if there's no Savior then all of this is a colossal waste of time. So if you come to Isaiah 12 with moralism or presumptuousness, you're not going to be very impressed by these six short verses. Because a moralist doesn't really think that he needs much grace from God. He's doing pretty well on his own. And he's glad enough that God will cover you know, the few little slips, a few little mistakes here and there. Nobody's perfect. But he's, he's pretty much got it under control. And the presumptuous one says, look, you just need to chill out. You just need to relax all, this, all these rules and all this sin talk. It's all about grace. What's all this talk about sin? Don't you understand that the, the problems in the world are, are very complex and there's many factors and sin is just way too simplistic and not to mention depressing Well, Isaiah 12 is coming at us from a different perspective. The language is actually quite strong. You might almost say desperate. It it kind of sounds needy. It's definitely dramatic. This is the speech of someone who is at the end of their rope. They're praising the one who rescued them from certain 
doom. And they're telling everyone they can about the glories of their rescuer. So this passage is here both to announce the reality of God's salvation of sinners and to tell those sinners what a proper response to that reality is. So this passage is in a very compact form a proclamation of the gospel and an exemplary response to the gospel. And so that brings us to our theme for today. Oh, it worked. Okay. Open your heart to the Lord so you can revel in his salvation. Open your heart to the Lord so you can revel in his salvation. It's such a short passage. Next week, I think Pete has 14 or 15 chapters. (laughs) So I got a great week. And And we need to slow down. Face the reality of our sin and engage with the the depth and breadth and wonder of the grace of God. We need to open our hearts to the Lord. We can try and revel in salvation without recognizing sin that needs salvation and we'll never get there. If you try to revel without knowing, knowing your sin, you'll never get there. So, passages like this help us to break through religiosity and get to the core of what it means for us as rebellious creatures to respond to unmerited love and grace. And we're going to look at this theme through three responses that are highlighted in these verses. And so first, we're called to recognize His mercy. So, verse 1 begins by looking forward to a day that hadn't yet occurred when Isaiah is prophesying here. He said, you will say in that day. It's a forward-looking. And and you also notice, uh, we can't tell because of the English, but that the you here is singular. So Isaiah is helping his audience to consider their own personal responsibility before the Lord. How will you respond individually, each one of us? Uh, Later in verse 3, he switches to plural, and then in verse 6, he goes back to singular, and I'm not going to get into all that. But but he's calling each individual Israelite, and by extension, he's calling us to consider his message. For them, it was a message for that day. And what day is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the day of judgment for Israel's enemies, when they're punished for their sins, which is also the day of restoration for Israel, when they're restored, they're brought back from exile. So he's giving hope to the people of God. He's saying, one day you will give thanks to the Lord. And then he tells them precisely what they're going to say. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. He's saying, you'll give thanks to the Lord for restoration, for salvation. You'll agree with the Lord that you deserved His wrath. There's no protest here. Right? The whole approach assumes that God is justly angry with His people. It assumes that if God hadn't acted in mercy, His people would have known His anger and it would be right for God to do so. And so that ought to raise a question for us. And and kids, I'm very glad that you're in because this is a question for you too. It's not just a question for your parents. This is a question for all of us. This is a great question to ask your parents this afternoon. Is God angry with you? Is God angry with you? How do you even answer a question like that? 
How do we know? And before we even attempt to answer that question, I think we have to honestly admit we don't really want to answer that question. It's a very uncomfortable question. Is God angry with me? Is God angry with me? Well, what does the Bible say? Well, one, no, one well-known verse, easy for you to say, uh, is Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So according to this passage, God is angry with everyone who has disobeyed him, which is all of us. It's everyone. And to make matters worse, part of our disobedience is that we suppress the truth about God. And so kids, I don't know if you've ever gone swimming in a swimming pool and had a beach ball, and maybe you've heard this illustration. If you have a beach ball in a swimming pool and you try to press it under the water, what happens when you let go of that ball? Shoots up, right? That's what we try to do with the knowledge of God. We try and hold him down, right? When we sin, we sin because we love ourselves and we want what we want. And, and when we're doing that, we don't want anything to do with God. We don't want to think about a God who, who is holy and judges, right? Sinners suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. It's futile because we can't successfully do it. But that's what we try to do. Sinners don't want to know the truth about God's anger because it it reflects badly on us. It reminds us that that we're accountable and we can't escape accountability. So in one sense, the answer to the question, is God angry with me, is the same answer to another question, which is, have I ever disobeyed God? Have I ever sinned? So have you ever sinned? Do you deserve the wrath of God? Is God angry with you? Well, as we return to Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1, we notice that the verb is in the past tense. He says, you were angry with me, and your anger turned away. Isaiah is actually telling the Israelites that one day, both the punishment of the judgment and exile, and then the restoration afterward will be in their rearview mirror. He said, you're going to experience God's anger and judgment. And you're going into exile. And then God will restore you. And on that day, on the day of his mercy, this will be your confession. Though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. That you might comfort me. So this promise is about more than being kicked out of and then returned to the land, isn't it? Because while being in the land mattered profoundly for the Israelites, the weightiest matter was their status before God himself. They lost the land because of idolatry, because they rebelled against God and they persisted in rebellion against God. They were hard-hearted. But they would be restored to the land through faith and repentance. So the relief that Isaiah is offering is a spiritual relief. It's a relief that comes when you know that you're guilty before God, and you know that you deserve the anger of God, and yet his anger turns away. And not only that, but he comes and comforts you. What can explain this about face when the one that you've offended 
actually becomes your comforter. Well, in a rather dense paragraph in Romans 3, the Apostle Paul explains how this works. He's discussing, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we desperately need God to both forgive us and to count us as righteous. But there's a problem. God's wrath is a holy wrath. It's a just wrath, and it's set against our rebellion. God is holy, and so he must punish sin. So how can we be rescued from what we truly deserve? Well, Paul writes, there is redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So how is it that the one we've offended can become our comforter? How is it that the the just anger of God we've earned can actually be turned away? Well, Romans 3 gives us this all-important word, propitiation. Propitiation means to appease or to quench wrath, to remove wrath. And so the way that the anger of God is turned away from sinners who have earned it richly is by God taking that anger upon himself. God put Christ Jesus forward as a propitiation. So when Jesus hung on the cross, all the sins of all of his people were credited to him. They were counted to him. They were laid upon him and punished to the utmost. The wrath of God against the sins of his people was exhausted on the cross, on Jesus Christ. The Son of God hung on that cross, enduring the wrath of God, so that the anger of God could be turned away from the children of God. So the Father moves from condemner to comforter because he has satisfied the demands of righteousness. He he moves from condemner to comforter because he is merciful and he will save his people. He is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that is what Isaiah is commending to the Israelites and by extension to us. How many Christians miss out on the Lord's comfort in their daily living? Not because they don't have enough happy thoughts about God, but because they refuse to face their sins. They refuse to be honest before God and therefore they fail to meet the Savior who holds out grace, who pardons, who propitiates anger and turns to comfort us in spite of our rebellion. You see the progression here, right? You were angry with me, deservedly. Your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Comfort comes after recognizing sin and grace. So if we're seeing the Savior rightly, we will be aware of our sin and failure. You can't stand before the holy God on this side of the glorification, and not be aware of your sinfulness. That's the whole point of Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah sees the Lord, holy, 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 and what does he say? Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. But as we recognize our sin, we can take it to the Savior and receive his mercy and pardon toward us. You were angry with me, Your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Isaiah then calls out another effect of mercy in verse 2. After we've been comforted, we will say, Behold, God is my salvation. We're, We're not just receiving a pardon. 
We're receiving God Himself. We're brought into fellowship with God. We're brought into His glory and goodness. And, and then notice how He structures this. He gives two statements. One positive and one negative. And then He's going to give the, the truth that undergirds all of this. So first, the positive statement. Behold, God is my salvation. I, I will trust. I will not be afraid. I will trust. I will not be afraid. Is there a more timely message right now? And I'm not just talking about COVID. Fear is rampant in our culture, in our world. It is rampant and pervasive and oppressive. The atmosphere is filled with fear. Fear of sickness and death. Financial fear. Political fear. Fear of the future. And Isaiah is telling us that if we've drunk deeply of the Lord's salvation, we will trust and we will not be afraid. We will trust and we will not be afraid. If our deepest need has been met, which is the removal of God's wrath and restoration to his favor, then there is nothing else we face that we need fear. Nothing that we face that we need fear. Look at how Isaiah grounds this, the foundation that he gives. He says, For, or because, the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. These words may be familiar to you. Do you you recognize them? They come from the song of Moses in Exodus 15, immediately after God had delivered Israel through the Red Sea and destroyed Pharaoh's armies. Right, destroyed their oppressors, and Moses sings his song, and these words come from it. Isaiah's hearkening back to the definitive salvation event in Israel's history to try to, to give words to the magnitude of the truth that he is declaring. God's salvation is so great, his rescue is so powerful and comprehensive that it drives out all fear. So why do we trust And not fear. Why can Christians remain steadfast in times of crisis and trial? It's not because we're just so stable. We know that's not the case. Our steadfastness has to come from outside of us. It comes from looking to God to be our strength and song. From looking to God to be our salvation. And I I can't preach this passage now and not mention the vaccines that are out right now. I don't mention them to give you a medical opinion because I have no medical opinion. I've not studied it. Uh, I'm not trained in that. I'm not saying whether you should or shouldn't get a vaccine. Theologically, here's my concern. We have been told for nine months that COVID is the biggest crisis in your life. And now we're being told that science has solved that problem and the vaccine is our savior. And neither of those things are true. COVID is a very real thing. It's very dangerous to some people. Okay? And I, I hope and pray that the, that the vaccines are wonderful and, and spare illness and save lives and they have little to no negative side effects. I hope that's the case. But COVID is not the biggest problem in our lives. The wrath of God is the biggest problem in our lives. And science is not our savior. Science is a wonderful gift from God. But it is not our salvation. And if you look at some of the language and some of the ways things are being talked about, 
People are looking to these things salvifically. Right? We just went through an election. Both candidates were held up as messiahs, depending on which side you were on. They're not our salvation either. Right? The biggest problem in the world is the wrath of God. The settled, steady opposition of God to those who have rebelled against him. And your status before God is one of two statuses. You have either rejected Christ and you remain under his wrath. And if you persist in rebellion, you will one day stand before him and pay the penalty that you deserve in hell forever without any diminishment. Or if you have turned to Christ, then your sins were punished already. The wrath of God was exhausted on your Savior. And all the penalty that you deserve has been removed. And you have been credited with the righteousness of the perfect Son of God. And you stand before God loved and pardoned and accepted and adopted and secure and sealed by His Spirit and the recipient of great and precious promises. These things are far weightier and far more important than anything else ever going on in the world. And we have to engage God and life on those terms before we're going to be able to engage COVID or finances or relationships or anything else in life with wisdom and faith, with love for God and love for our neighbors. Right? You can't let the loudest voices in the room determine what's true. God's voice is the true voice. And then everything else is evaluated by him and his word. So we have to open our hearts to the Lord so we can revel in his salvation. He means for us to revel in his salvation. And that brings us to our second point, rest within his salvation. So verse 3 brings us to the water metaphor of this passage and, and the reason that I began with that story about hog confinements. It describes for us the, the first part of a proper response to the Lord's salvation in our lives. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Again, this is not an uncommon image in Scripture. And so we have to appreciate what Isaiah is saying here. Every time someone in the ancient Near East went to a well, life was at stake, right? They didn't have faucets in their home that they could open. And so the experience of getting this basic and fundamental necessity of life was a little more involved for them than for most of us. But given human nature, I'm sure it became routine quickly enough. So verse 3 is striking in beginning, with joy you will draw. If you need water every day and you know you can go to the well every day and get water, how likely are you to draw water with joy? Not very, right? But if you've been desperately thirsty to the point of death and you come across a well unexpectedly, you draw that water with joy. You probably cry out for joy when you first spot the well. And so you understand what this means for us. It means it's true that we're always looking for satisfaction and for happiness, just like that quote from Philip Reeve. And the problem is not so much that we're looking for happiness. The problem is with how we define happiness and what we're willing to do to try and get it. So Isaiah is very clear and very helpful to us. Turn to the Lord with joy. Draw water from the wells of his salvation. It's also noteworthy that Jesus picked up on this imagery in John chapter 7. He was at the Feast of Tabernacles. And in a very dramatic fashion, on the last day of the feast, he stands up and he cries out. The text says he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Can you imagine someone doing that at a feast? Can you imagine what you would think about that person who did that? But what's Jesus offering? He's offering life. He's offering eternal life. So where are you turning for life? Where do you think satisfaction lies? What what are you bending your efforts and your energies after? You know, in one sense, this imagery applies it to our initial trusting in Christ. The, the very first time that we, we realize that we're sinners and that God is justly angry with us and we, we feel our need for salvation and we see Jesus and the gospels proclaimed to us and we turn and we trust in Christ and we're pardoned and we're counted righteous and, and we receive true joy and true peace. But the gospel's never meant to stop at that moment. Every moment of every day, we need to draw water from the wells of salvation. We need the wisdom and the love and the grace and the faith and the patience and all the fruit of the Spirit that come to us through Christ Himself. We were created to be dependent upon God. It is a design feature of humanity. And everything within us and everything without us wants to tell us that we can be independent from God. Right? Never going to happen. And the sooner we recognize that how deeply dependent we are on God, we can, we can actually rejoice in that dependence. It's so good for us to be dependent. Because we, we come to the wells of salvation and we draw water with joy. The wells that never run out. So are you discouraged right now? Are you struggling? You feel like you're, you're not making progress as a Christian. You're just stagnant. Or do you feel like you're, you're crushed under poor health? Or, or do you feel like the, the broken relationships in your life means you're just never going to be happy again? You know, when, when we're struggling with sin or when we're suffering with pain, our worlds tend to get very, very small indeed. Right? They tend to shrink our focus very narrowly. And Isaiah is calling us to lift up our eyes and to see the wells of salvation and to come with joy and draw water deeply from these wells. He says, bring your sins, bring your very worst to the one who saves. Bring your suffering and your need to the one who saves. All that you need is available to you in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you need that Christ does not have for you. There's nothing that you have that he hasn't provided for you. So the encouragement and the strength and the hope and the perseverance and the holiness is all available to you in Christ Jesus. I'm pretty sure I've uh, posted this um, question and answer from a catechism before, but I find it so helpful. It's it's such a beautiful, uh, encouraging summary of these truths. It's from the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil 
And so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing. I love that. Heartily willing. It's Romans 6. Willing from the heart and ready henceforth to live for him. So if you have, with joy, drawn water from the wells of salvation in Jesus Christ, then these truths are yours. Why would you go anywhere else? Take your weary soul to Christ. Open your heart to the Lord so you can revel in his salvation. And that brings us to our final point, proclaim his glory with gladness. The final three verses give us the second part of a proper response to the Lord's salvation, a proper response to the gospel. And Isaiah sets it up this way. And you will say in that day. So what do you say? What do you say in response to the grace of God? Do you wonder? What, what words come forth from a heart that's been affected deeply by the greatness of God's salvation? Well, Isaiah gives us a series of imperatives, of commands that we're to proclaim to one another and to others. He says, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously, which is another Exodus 15, Song of Miriam, after the Red Sea. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So the proper response to the love and goodness and mercy of God to us, the proper response for the one who knows that he deserves God's anger and yet finds that it's been turned away and he's been comforted by God, is both to draw water from the wells of salvation and to proclaim the glories and goodness of God to others in such a way that they come to the wells of salvation. And in that way, our witness as Christians is organic. It's not forced. It grows naturally out of our hearts as we've been transformed, as we've been recipients of undeserved love and grace. As we've been loved by God, we love Him in return and our joys are found in Him and we can't help but speak about our joys. You know that, right? You can't help but speak about your joys. You always tell others about things you enjoy. So for Eagles fan, there's not a lot of joy right now. But for, you know, there's things that you enjoy in life. There's, there's good food that you love or a, a favorite vacation spot or, you know, and you're commending it to others. Well, if God has become your joy, you will commend Him to others. It's, it's, it's natural. It's inescapable. And so this is parents who have tasted deeply of the love and mercy and grace of God for their own sins, who then turn to discipline and instruct their children and to offer their children a savior for their sins. And this is employers and coworkers and neighbors and friends who, who fear the Lord and they live with integrity before Him and they commend Him to those that they engage with in their daily lives. This is children and young adults who are, who are wrestling with big questions about life. And, and what does it mean to, to not just follow my parents to church, but to actually know and love the God that my parents commend to me, and they're wrestling with big decisions about marriage and work and kids and the future and priorities, and they're, they're wrestling with the question of whose voice is loudest, whose approval matters most, and, and the power of peer pressure. 
But as we turn to Christ and, and with joy we draw water from the wells of his salvation, our souls are satisfied and we commend his grace and goodness to others. It is inescapable. We can't help but do it. I ask Doug to come up. Well, perhaps as we work through this passage, you noticed how many times Isaiah calls us to sing. In just six verses, three times he tells us to sing. He tells us the Lord God is our strength and our song. He calls us to sing praises to the Lord. And he commands us to shout and sing for joy. So it's fitting that as we close here in a moment, and as we've been reminded of of the greatness of God's salvation, as our hearts have been encouraged by the truth of God's mercy and faithfulness, we can respond together in song. So open your heart to the Lord so you can revel in his salvation. Let's pray. Father, we know that because we are all sinners, we have all incurred your wrath and anger. We all justly deserve to be punished. There's not a one of us who could escape punishment. And yet, because you are rich in mercy and great in love, You took all the initiative to send your son for sinners. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so in who he is and what he's done, you have made a way for us to be pardoned, to be loved, to be righteous, to be secure, to be welcomed into your presence forever. I pray that the reality of your grace would so richly and deeply grip our hearts that we we would respond with love for you, that we would love you more, that we would want to know and serve and obey and enjoy and glorify you more every day. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.